You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what we do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, where for $1 per month, you get access to an exclusive B-roll RSS feed of episodes of B-roll recordings um, across all of the podcasts. And at $2 a month, you get that plus TV review and reaction episodes. Right now, I'm doing... Or uh, right now, as of this recording, I'm doing a weekly Falcon and the Winter Soldier reviews, and then in June, I'll be doing Loki reviews each week. Just little 20-minute reaction audio episodes at the $2 level on Patreon, and at the $5 level, you get access to all of that, plus full-length movie commentary tracks and immediate reviews. Right now, I have Ex Machina, The Shining, Doctor Sleep, Seven, and Sunshine um, all up there. Also, probably the 1954 Godzilla movie. Um... The original Godzilla um, is also up there, too, at the $5 month level. And then finally, at $10 per month, you get access to all of that, plus early access to podcast episodes and previously unreleased content. Again, you can find that at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. And uh, yeah, um, so today on the show, I'll be discussing The Mirror. It's the sixth episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on April 20th, or I'm sorry, October 20th, 1961. And I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 15, The Frozen Sound. But before I get to all of that, I do want to give a shout out to Victor Gamboa and the excellent The Outer Limits podcast. Recently, I was invited to be a guest on The Outer Limits podcast, and I had just such a blast chatting with Victor about um, an early episode of the of the Outer Limits that now I'm I'm blanking on the name of that episode, um, the Architects of Fear. Um, <clears throat> it was a blast to chat with Victor. He and I have been uh, kind of podcast internet friends for a while, and uh, I really really love his show, The Outer Limits Podcast, and uh, highly recommend checking that out. And uh, checking out the rest of his episodes and his show, it's it's really great, um, especially since there's such a, a um, I th- I think this is the right use of the word, but there's such a dearth of uh, outer limits podcasts out there. Um, I'm gonna look that up because I'm not 100 percent sure that I <laughs> am using that word correctly, but there is not a lot of outer limits podcasts. Um, out there, and Victor's is fantastic. And I did use that word right. Um, <laughs> dearth, a scarcity or lack of something. So there is a dearth of Outer Limits podcast stuff out there, but Victor Gambo does a great job, and I was honored to be a guest on his show. Check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes and everything. So um, now we're going to go into get into the episode. That's all the kind of new business that I have at the top of the episode. So um, just giving you a warning. Um, I am going to be spoiling The Mirror, um, the sixth episode of The Twilight Zone's third season. So if you don't want to be spoiled on it, go watch the episode and then come back and listen to this episode. So, um, all right, spoilers on for 
the mirror. First up, I'm going to read the plot summary, courtesy of Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. So here we go. Cheered by thousands when he took office, a Latin American liberator named Ramos Clemente soon becomes guilty of the same tyranny from which he liberated his people. With the assistance, with his assi- well, <laughs> with the assistance of his four lieutenants, he confronts General de Cruz, the former dictator, who informs Clemente that they are of the same breed. They are the keepers of the grab, who will soon suffer from fear of rebellion, disloyalty, or assassination. Before being led out for judgment, the general warns Clemente that the mirror hanging on the wall possesses magic. It will reflect the images of his assassins. Clemente laughs at the notion until he discovers that each decision he makes causes one of his comrades to turn against him. One by one, his four comrades are murdered at the command of Clemente, each foretold by the reflections in the mirror seen only through Clemente's eyes. A full week goes by as he continues to issue public executions, hoping to purge the streets of his enemies. After receiving a visit from a priest, Clemente learns that his is the story of all tyrants. His greatest enemy is himself. After smashing the mirror, Clemente pulls the trigger of his gun and commits suicide. Starring as Ramos Clemente is Peter Falk. Uh, This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, um, although he did star in a uh, 2000 uh, re- remake of a TV movie from 1970 uh, that was written by Rod Serling. So um, that's a little convoluted. So he Peter Falk starred in 2000 in a TV movie called A Storm in Summer that was written by Rod Serling and was a remake of a TV movie or I guess it was it was a remake of a TV movie in 1970 that was written by Rod Serling, also called A Storm in Summer. Uh, that 1970 TV movie was directed by Buzz Kulik. Uh, Peter Falk is best known for playing Columbo, and he was also the grandfather in The Princess Bride. And another kind of sci-fi um, connection is that he was also um, he also appeared in the um, Philip K. Dick adaptation Next with um, Nicolas Cage, which is it's it's okay. I mean, it's it's a movie. Um, uh, Co-starring as, or also featured in this episode, is uh, as De Cruz is Will Kuluvo or Kaluva. Uh, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Next, we'll see from him is in season four's The New Exhibit. He did appear in one episode of Tales of Tomorrow in 1952, and he also appeared in 1982, the 1982 movie Voyager from the Unknown, which I found kind of interesting because I have no knowledge of it. Um, but the plot summary is: This film consists of two tales of time travel, combining science fiction characters with actual historical figures. Hexum stars as. Uh, Phineas Bogg, a time traveler who teams up with an orphan named Jeff. They issue, they visit people, they visit important people from history as they try to get home while at the same time not altering the path of history. So it sounds like kind of a, um, <clears throat> kind of, I guess, standard time travel story, but, uh, kind of curious in, in, uh, in any case. As D'Alessandro is Richard Carlin. This was his second of two Twilight Zone episodes. The first time we saw him in the show was as the bartender in season one's execution. And Vladimir Sokolov plays Father Tomas. This is his second of three Twilight Zones. We previously saw him appear in the episode Dust. And next we'll see, next and final we'll see from him is The Gift later this season, which this is kind of interesting and tragic, and I'm sure that I'll, I'll speak about it, um, when I review The Gift, but he actually died a few months before The Gift aired later this season. So that's kind of 
a unique piece of morbid trivia. And rounding out the cast as Christo is Anthony Carbone. This was his only Twilight Zone episode. And writer for this episode was Rod Serling. And the only note I have regarding this episode and Rod Serling is that he was apparently very impressed with Peter Falk's acting, um, as was I, to be honest. Um, he was so impressed with, uh, with the acting that he actually contracted Peter Falk to appear in two more episodes of the show, but this actually, this episode ended up being his only role in the Twilight Zone. I'm not really sure why. I kind of assume maybe it has something to do with scheduling conflicts or something, but in any case, this was his only role in the Twilight Zone um, and everything. So, director for this episode was Don Medford. Uh, this was his third of five Twilight Zone episodes. We previously saw his work in The Man in the Bottle. And next we'll see of him is in a couple of weeks, I think. Uh, or a few weeks, I think. Um, time is irrelevant. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll see his work in Death's Head Revisited, which I think was actually in production before this episode was. Um but I'll probably have more detail about that when I review Death's Head Revisited. And uh, he also, I'm sure I said this in the Man in the Bottle review, but he also directed 36 episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, which is crazy. And uh, he also directed a Serling script in 1953 for Medallion Theater called 24 Men in a Plane. And again, I'm sure that I probably mentioned this in one of the other episodes uh, of the Twilight Zone that he directed, but his last credit, his last like credit before he passed uh, was a late 80s, I think, TV show episode, a uh, cop show called True Blue, which it stands out to me because that was the first I, I was born in 86. And I think this show was in like 88 or something. And somehow I saw like a couple of episodes like week to week. I, and I, it's it always boggles my mind because I was like two or three. And I can't imagine having the memory of seeing that, but I remember really, really liking it <laughs> and being like uh, really upset that it was canceled because it was canceled after like half a season, if that. Um, but I don't know. It's just it's it's anytime that comes up, uh, it always kind of blows my mind because I was like three. Anyway, so um, so let's get into my review of The Mirror. So as I normally do, I'm going to talk about what I knew about the episode before I saw the episode for the first time. So I've actually, I actually first saw this episode um, a while, no, 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 I just recently watched this episode, but I made the note of what I knew before way back in 2020. So it was soon after I'd seen the movie Oculus for the first time, and when I saw this uh episode title being you know um being called uh geez what uh the mirror sorry i'm just adjusting some settings here um so <laughs> before i saw the uh the episode title of the mirror i had actually watched the movie oculus which is a pretty good horror movie um so all that's to say that i have no idea i had no idea what this episode was about because it's a pretty nondescript episode title but I had just seen Oculus for the first time, so the title had me intrigued, and I thought that maybe it might be a mirror that shows you what you most desire or something, kind of like um, whatever the mirror is called in Harry Potter. Um, but I don't know. But oh, and I just I'm looking ahead on my notes, and I'm I'm sorry in advance for this dumb drop that I'm gonna do. But um, I caught a glimpse of the plot summary when I was watching it on Hulu. And uh, in my notes, I have, I caught a glimpse of the plot summary and think it has something to do with someone in South America. And so I made this drop from, uh, stupid drop here. South America! 
I'm sorry. And what's funny is it isn't South America. It's Central America. But in my defense, Hulu's plot summary has, uh, has it stated as South America. So anyway, that's the very little that I knew of this episode um, before going into it. So let me get into the actual review of the episode of The Twilight Zone that I'm reviewing this week, The Mirror. So it opens up with um, just a shot of a balcony and we see Ramos Clemente coming out and uh, all the people are cheering and everything. He's the new ruler of a Central American country and he goes back inside and he is celebrating with his friends. So I really like this celebratory way that Peter Falk plays Clemente in this opening scene. He's like he's drunk on victory and power already and that kind of complements what he says in a, a few moments into the episode where he talks about being like he didn't know if he would be happy or or drunk or or what have you and he posits that like he asks like what makes a man drunk the wine or the the people cheering his name and so he plays that really effectively and really well in that scene and kind of in overall terms about this episode um kind of kind of overall this this episode was pretty solid I, I do like several things about it that I'll get to throughout the review but um one of the things that really stood out to me as I was you know, prepping for this episode is that I like just how low key this episode is. Um, so much of this episode happens off screen and the use of sound effects of gunfire that increases throughout the episode really helps paint a picture without paint, like a picture that's kind of minimalist in, in its presentation and everything. It's something that is something I really just appreciate about is how just minimalist it is and, uh, how, deep the uh, the plot is um, in conjunction with that minimalist approach. And an, a good example is that the opening shot where the cheers from the crowd for Clemente is shot from the perspective of the crowd looking up, and I feel like that's really strong imagery to bring us right into the episode. Um, and yet it's just it's just a man standing on a balcony. Like, we don't see the crowd or anything. We hear them off screen. But it's so effective because it's it's shot at eye level from the crowd, and it's just some such an evocative kind of um, imagery for this character that we're going to be following for the next 25 minutes. Um, and again, I just love the minimalist aspect of that. It really just it really does a great job of showcasing what um, like how big the episode is through just a very small confined space. And speaking of small confined confined spaces, the uh, the palace set, like that room that uh, the majority, if not all, of the scenes take place in, is a really cool set design. Like there's a good amount of detail to that interior set. It has all the trappings of basically any kind of uh, tyrannical um, uh, dictator um, motif of of a set decoration and everything. Like um, I'm like I said earlier in this episode, I'm you know, 34 years old. So my kind of cultural touchstone or my, my, um, my frame of reference for that type of set uh, or that type of location in the world, <clears throat> excuse me, in the world is, um, like the, the scenes that, uh, that like the Saddam Hussein palaces and everything that appeared, you know, in pop culture and or not pop culture, but in the world <laughs> um, during the Iraq war. So it kind of just reminded me of that. It had that kind of aesthetic. And that's interesting because, you know, it's decades, decades ago. So it's it kind of really plays into that overall theme of, you know, 
tyranny is the same all over. Uh, <laughs> tyranny is alike all over. Um, I did not mean to make that a, uh, people are alike all over, um, uh, reference, but, uh, I hope you appreciated that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and I just really love that, again, that balcony looking over the world behind Clemente, um, while he's inside the, inside the room and everything. It's just a really, uh, strong kind of metaphor that he's, on, he's on top. He is, he's the leader of this country now after a revolution. And it's just, it's really effective imagery with a minimalist kind of approach in terms of set design and, and, uh, filming, uh, location and everything. And so, um, I want to talk about Peter Falk as Clemente and it's like, I was really surprised to find out that that was Peter Falk and I kind of wonder, and this isn't anything that I'm going to dwell on or anything, but I kind of wonder if that's kind of offensive by 2021 standards. Um, because I, I assume they're all in like maybe brown face. I, I don't know, but, um, I mean, it's, it is kind of an, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I might have talked to myself into a corner here, but kind of the bottom line is that realistically, this is the height of the Cold War that they're filming it in, in 1961. And I feel like international actors that fit these roles would probably be hard to come by at that time. And also, like I said, it's the 60s, so I'm just not going to dwell on it or anything. But I do have a piece of trivia about that or in that same kind of um that vein. So Arthur Batanitas uh who played Tabal uh he's quoted as saying according to the un- un- according according to unlocking the door to a television classic he's quoted as saying at one point we all had to leave the studio dressed in our latin american outfits since there was a lot of anti-castro bias at the time we felt insecure walking around the streets in these uniforms it was definitely not the time to be running around looking like one of castro's men i thought somebody might run us down so i found that really interesting because that is you know a product of the time of the era and and kind of um, an interesting anecdote about the making of this episode. And as we continue on the episode, we see uh, Clemente and his four lieutenants celebrating their victory. And uh, this is obviously it's a stand in for uh, Cuba and Fidel Castro, which admittedly, I don't know enough about like Castro's reign in in Cuba or anything. I don't know a lot about the... uh, the Cold War on that front or anything. So, um, on that note, I did look into it a little bit and I found this really interesting. So, the script, this script was dated. It was written and dated on July 11th, 1961, and it was filmed in August of 1961. And to put that into context with the Cold War of the era, the Bay of Pigs invasion occurred in April of 1961. Now, like I said, I don't know enough about the Cold War and everything or anything. I don't have much of a frame of reference for what the Bay of Pigs invasion was, um, except for just what I've picked up kind of in passing on pop culture. So I looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, the Bay of Pigs was a failed landing operation on the southwestern coast of Cuba in 1961 by Cuban exiles who opposed Fidel Castro's Cuban Revolution. Covertly financed and directed by the U.S. government, the operation took place at the height of the Cold War, and its failure led to major shifts in international relations between Cuba, the United States, and the Soviet Union. And another interesting kind of piece of history and, and contextualizing for this episode is that uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis actually occurred one year 
after this episode aired. So the Cuban Missile Crisis was in October, uh, ran from October 16th to October 19th, or um, 16th to the 29th um, in 1962. And obviously this episode was aired on October 20th, 1961. And as far as, you know, the Cold War and everything, like the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis are two big, big moments that I have stumbled upon uh, in my... Um, watching of pop culture and like like knowledge of history and everything so i just found it interesting that this episode kind of is 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 exists in this kind of era and everything like i said the script was dated june july 11th 1961 so that's just a few months after um the bay of pigs invasion and everything so i just found that kind of interesting and everything and i hope that uh i don't come across as much of an idiot as i think i am about this topic so um okay so back to the episode they're celebrating and everything and the laughter um that ramos kind of starts and and the lieutenants kind of follow suit with is really intriguing at this point um because they're it's cheerful it's it's celebratory and everything um but there obviously is tough times ahead and everything but what i find more interesting in this is the way that the that the four men the four lieutenants are framed in the shot so ramos is laughing and they're laughing along with him they're about to get they're about to toast uh to the victory and everything and they are shot in the frame in a row uh, in profile and they're laughing along with Ramos and it's particularly interesting framing because considering that all of these men will be killed by the episode's end and their killer will be committing suicide and I just I really thought that that was just really interesting kind of framing of these four men kind of in not necessarily like a rushing nesting doll kind of way but like each one is kind of side by side in a line and they're they're shot in profile so you see all of them in a in a line it's just really interesting and so Ramos explains that he has so much bubbling inside of him and he says that he didn't know whether he would laugh in this moment or get drunk or um or or drink and then he says that he he then wonders if a man becomes drunk from wine or the people shouting his name which I thought was a really interesting line for the episode given everything that happens and everything and it's just it's a really interesting and efficient way to get a, kind of bring us into this this theme of tyranny and uh tyrannical people <laughs> um uh the gro the the escalation of a tyrant uh soon after he reaches his uh his goal of, of gaining control of a of a country um and it's also like and it's just a good peek into his thought process as well um which we get a couple there's another line later in the episode that i'll get to that i thought was really interesting in that regard as in terms of like kind of not humanizing him per se, but uh, giving us a peek into his thought process and a hint at kind of the corruption that this power is is going to give him and escalates within him. And what I find interesting, though, is that this isn't necessarily a power corrupt story, per se, in my opinion. It seems more a cautionary tale against tyranny and it's showcasing the instability of absolute power, which is also kind of in line with the power corrupts kind of kind of theme and everything. But um, overall, it kind of explores what happens when someone's absolute power kind of gets in their head and everything, which is a very heavy 
very heavy topic to explore in 25 minutes, and I feel like this episode does a pretty solid job of of that in of um of of you know covering it in this in this time slot. Um, so Ramon or Ramon uh, Ramos. Um, he uh, toasts his friends, the four lieutenants of the revolution, and the new heads of government. And he kind of goes down the line, and I'll read them. Uh, Cristo, the bold one. D'Alessandro, the dedicated one. Tabal, the quiet one. And Garcia, the strong one. And right there, in that moment, like with that framing and everything, and with just the, the five men in the scene, with one toasting the four, like that, that kind of really gave me this... Um, this really Shakespearean feel to the episode, and I kind of really, really immediately like fell in love with it for that. So I haven't read much Shakespeare. <laughs> um, uh, I really, I really haven't. I'm pretty ignorant with a lot of Shakespearean work, but I have seen a pretty good amount of of like adaptations, both on stage. I've seen a couple on stage, but a lot of movies that are adaptations and one in particular, and I promise this isn't a shameless plug for the Patreon, but one is Akira Kurosawa's 1957, uh, Macbeth adaptation set in like feudal Japan, uh, throne of blood, which I did a commentary track for on Patreon at the $5 and a month, uh, $5 per month and above levels. So check that out if you're interested in it. But since, since throne of blood, was so fresh in my mind when I watched this episode, it really gave me this kind of entry point into this episode of The Twilight Zone because it really feels like this is, at least on on some level, it's a little bit like Macbeth by way of The Twilight Zone. So Ramos uh, achieves power and he's convinced of betrayal and danger surrounding him by his most trusted allies, which kind of in a very rudimentary kind of... uh, I don't know, in, in a really straightforward um, way is, is uh, or in broad terms, is, is very similar to Macbeth, at least as Kurosawa adapted it in Throne of Blood. <laughs> um, so this kind of prologue and everything oh, like ends with um, De Cruz, or not De Cruz, but R- uh, Ramos, uh, throwing a cup at the portrait of De, De Cruz, the former dictator, the former tyrant that they just overthrew. And so he call he calls for De Cruz to be brought in, um, and he says we'll start with that. And like I kind of, maybe this is reading into it, but referring to like like this action of of speaking to De Cruz, um, saying like we'll start with that. Like the use of that uh, kind of feels like a, a dehumanizing kind of phrasing. Um, I that may not be intentional because right like it, the full line is bring in, bring him in. Uh, we'll start with that. So he does refer to him as him. So I don't know, maybe I'm just reaching, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting, um, interesting way to kind of showcase the callousness of, of Ramos Clemente. And, uh, that brings us to the opening narration from Rod Serling, which I will play right now. This is the face of Ramos Clemente. A year ago, a beardless, nameless worker of the dirt who plotted behind a mule, furrowing someone else's land. Then he looked up at a hot Central American sun and he pledged the impossible. He made a vow that he would lead an avenging army against the tyranny that put the ache in his back and the anguish in his eyes. And now, one year later, the dream of the impossible has become a fact. In just a moment, we will look deep into this mirror and see the aftermath of a rebellion in the Twilight Zone. 
So I feel like this opening narration really gives kind of an important backstory to, to Clemente. And it kind of made me wonder when I was watching it for the first time that um, it might be about power corrupting and everything. And I'm really glad that it it was, but it also was more about um, the psychology, the, psych- the, the, the demented psychology of, of the tyrant and everything. So... And on that same front, um, I th- really think that it's interesting that the Twilight Zone element of this story is the mirror, and it's not something that brought Ramos into power. So I kind of wonder if I'm reading into it a little bit, but it seems significant that the lead up to the uprising, like that 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 Ramos Clemente led an uprising and a revolution within a year, all without a supernatural spin or help. So having the supernatural Twilight Zone element of the story be be a mirror that really only reflects his paranoia and not like a monkey's paw type of bargain, or like it's not like he wished for absolute power or wished to overthrow the regime, and the kind of monkey's paw aspect of that is that he becomes that which he overthrew. Um... That's not the case. Instead, the mirror, the thing that is reflecting him, is what is kind of driving the supernatural element of the story. And it's something that DeCruz goes on, like DeCruz in a scene here in a second, goes on to explain, um, like the, it sets, a, sets it up for him and everything. So I think that that's really interesting that the supernatural element, uh, Twilight Zone element, happens after this overthrow of the government and this, this power grab that um, has resulted in a re- uh, like the aftermath of, re- of a revolution and everything. And I just kind of think that, and again, I don't know much about the Cold War and I don't know much about uh, all of this stuff, but I kind of feel like it's telling us in 1961 that Ramos Clemente exists. And obviously, because he's a stand-in for, for Castro, but I think on a more broader, in a more broader sense, and this is kind of backed up by Serling's closing narration, I feel like that it's telling that this level of tyranny and horror exists out of the Twilight Zone and is happening. And I found that really compelling in terms of uh, the writing for the episode and the, the performance of Peter Falk as well. So they bring in DeCruz, the former, you know, uh, head of state, and... I really, really love Peter Falk's performance in this scene. So he is showing so much anger and rage at DeCruz, and the way it's presented is this really um, kind of righteous indignation. Like, he is kind of, he's shoving him around and he's yelling and, and everything. And overall, the kind of rage that's in Falk's performance is just, is really great and, and fantastic. But it's this, it's this rage born from this ideology or born from this um, peasant lifestyle that he had like lived his entire life or lived under, under the regime of De Cruz. And so it's this, it's this kind of uh, just bubbling, like he says earlier, <laughs> this bubbling feeling and this bubbling anger just kind of coming, coming out and, and everything. And I found the dialogue particularly just, um, disturbing, to be honest. So they talk about, uh, he, uh, he, he mentions that he's not going to set him up against a wall. He's not going to, uh, he's not going to set him, he's not going to kill him through firing squad. Um, because he says that, uh, a firing squad is a cheap death for underlings. 
And instead, what his plans, and I'll read verbatim what he says. Um, he says, quote, I'm going to strip you naked and then cover you with honey and then tie you to the ground under a hot sun. And then I'm going to let the ants have you. And then every time that you scream, I'm going to drink wine. And every time that you pray for mercy, I'm going to laugh out loud because I want you to take a long time to die to cruise. And holy crap, that is that is incredible dialogue and just really disturbing imagery and everything. And it just comes from this hatred that he has for DeCruz, um, from his peasant status under DeCruz's rule. And it kind of just showcases that DeCruz's regime did not care about the little guy and the working man and everything and, and all that. And what I found really also like additionally compelling about this is that DeCruz stands up to him and it kind of showcases the kind of resolve or the strength of DeCruz versus the arrogance and fear of Ramos, which is interesting in, a, in and of itself because DeCruz is also a tyrant. Like, like there is not a, I, I guess Father Tomas later in the episode is the one like good character in this episode. Like actually like good. Cause like the d- lieutenants are all, I mean, they, they orchestrated this revolution and everything. And it's, I mean, I guess they, they can be painted as painted as good, uh, characters and everything, but they also are following this tyrant, and uh, it's it's really it's really a messy kind of gray area for the for the decidedly good characters in and of themselves. And then De Cruz kind of gives this haunting uh, line read to, to Ramos. He says that uh, they're the same breed, and he mentions he even mentions Castro in a list of names. Um, he says, we're the spoilers. We care for no one, no one but ourselves. And I just found that really cool and just really powerful dialogue. And he says that fear will be Clemente's inheritance. And I found that also really compelling because it's like the fear that comes from power. And that's kind of the main thing of this entire episode is that it's this fear that's born from, from achieving power and this fear of, like getting, you know, um, you're betrayed and, and assassinated, um, and an uprising, uh, against you. And it's just a really compelling, um, uh, storyline and a really compelling kind of attitude to bring to the episode. And just FYI, it is raining here, so I don't know if the mic is picking up all of that, but I don't think it is, just so you know. Anyway, so DeCruz points out the mirror, and the he explains that a woman gave him uh, gave him the mirror and said that it was magic and that he'd be able to see the faces of his assassins. And the first time I saw this, like, in my notes, I put, okay, immediately I think this is an awesome premise. And uh, DeCruz kind of gives Clemente this haunting kind of thought and everything he says that he's going to see assassins everywhere and Clemente uh dismisses him and everything and they take him back to prison and so he says um I kind of feel like this is maybe him already kind of starting this kind of paranoia but he says um he he asks he says that there's no time for trials and he asks how many prisoners there are and I think D'Alessandro says uh there's a thousand and he says go ahead and kill them and so D'Alessandro he challenges him on that and he says there is uh he says there's no time for trials but there's time for murder and Clemente snaps back at him and he says murderers don't get murdered murderers get executed and uh that's just it's I mean it just kind of really brings us into this like 
in in if not escalation, then just kind of even demonstration of Clemente's um, demented, you know, absolute power kind of moment, I guess, um, and his just anger and and willingness to to kill th- like a thousand people. It's, it's crazy. So that's when we see our first kind of mirror scene <laughs> and Clemente sees D'Alessandro in the mirror pointing a gun at him. And he turns around and sees that D'Alessandro still has his back to him and everything. And first of all, I really like the way that the would-be assassins appear in the mirror. I found it really interesting because the way the way that D'Alessandro in this scene is holding the gun, he's holding like a, a machine gun or an assault rod, whatever. Uh, he's holding it in kind of this slow moving spinning kind of way and and these slow movements that it kind of reminds me of choreography that you would find in like a musical theater production and I really like that because it gives this kind of heightened reality to it and it makes the reactions that the people have toward Ramos um when they're kind of, when they're either um kind of denouncing the the um the reflections and saying that they're just illusions or when they're saying that, you know, they're, they're not, they're not going to betray him. It makes those reactions more believable in a way because the actual reflections we see through the, through the lens of Clemente is just really heightened and kind of performative, like a theatrical production. Um, and it's different in style from, you know, the real life of the episode, which is really interesting to me. And it's it's also interesting to me that the the introduction, the opening narration, explains that Ramos came from somewhat humble beginnings. He was just a farmer. Uh, he was he was uh, what was what was the phrasing? <laughs> a year ago, he was a beardless, nameless worker of the dirt who plotted behind a mule, fur- furrowing uh, someone else's land. And it's just interesting that he's this peasant who rose to power. And he's now kind of using that uh, power to, um, you know, kill everyone <laughs> and both the prisoners that he's having executed and now uh, D'Alessandro because he kills him without hesitation. And it's so kind of chilling and, and um, an interesting um, recurrence of the balcony scene because he um, goes after D'Alessandro, throws him off the balcony and uh kills him that way and it's just it's really interesting to me so the next scene is the next day presumably the next day or i think it could be like a week later or something but it's daytime instead of nighttime and this is where tabal uh stands up to ramos because ramos killed d'alessandro and again it kind of has the shakespearean type of tone because he is Tabal is is he's he's angry. He is explaining that you know he that D'Alessandro was not an assassin, and he wasn't going to betray him, and that it's a lie and and everything. And it just has this kind of this betraying quality, um, and this kind of uh, this this I don't know just this really dramatic quality that seems at home in like a Shakespearean production. And I fa- also found it really interesting that Tabal was referred in the toast earlier in the episode as being the quiet one. And I kind of feel like this gives his defiance and anger toward Clemente. It kind of gives him, gives it more power uh, behind his outbursts and everything as well. And um, I just, I found that really interesting that he's the first one to kind of 
um, call call Clemente out for killing D'Alessandro uh, when he was referred to as the quiet one. And so Garcia wakes up um, and he asks what's going on. And I, I can't really tell if it's because he hears the guns outside or if he's commenting on the the kind of argument that's that's forming between Tabal and Ramos. But he says, still at it, huh? And I feel like that's like a bare minimum of criticism against Ramos. And then Ramos sees Tabal and Garcia in the mirror uh, as assassins with one has a handgun, one has a knife. And again, they're doing that very slow moving kind of theatrical kind of movement where they're going to uh, assassinate or uh, yeah, assassinate Ramos. And that also brings this up. I really like how different each depiction of the assassins in the mirror are from each other. So, um, D'Alessandro had a machine gun and Tabal and Garcia have a handgun and a knife. And then when we see Cristo in a bit, he's going to have just a glass of wine. And it's just really interesting that they have that variety throughout it. So it's not repeating any, any similar stuff. Um, any, any similar depictions. And so, uh, Ramos, is shaken by this and he decides to send them to check on De Cruz. And, um, I think it's, I think it's Garcia says like, uh, says to, to what, to check on his health. Um, but he issues them the order and he goes and, and they leave the room and immediately Ramos calls the prison to have them both killed on site. And it, that just feels so disturbing and brutal to me. And again, it's different. It's a different form of execution, a different form of, of betrayal um, with the same end as his betrayal of D'Alessandro. And I just found that, I, I again, I just really like the variety in that. And... Also, it's just really interesting to me how the reflections don't really come into play. Like it doesn't, he doesn't see these, um, reflections of the, the would-be assassins until the men he sees reflected as assassins have either questioned his methods or defied his judgments or anything or, or what have you. Like it's not until they have fallen out of favor with him that he sees them in the mirror as would-be assassins. And I feel like that's an interesting kind of wrinkle to the story in that it could be viewed as this kind of literal just manifestation of Ramos's um, psychosis. His own It could be psychosomatic, that he is just seeing these images because he is a tyrant and he is filled with fear of being executed. Uh, or being assassinated. And it's just an interesting way to kind of look at the episode um, as a whole. So after he has ordered the hit on uh, Garcia and uh, Tabal, he asks Christo, the one remaining lieutenant, um, uh, quote-unquote Christo, the bald one, bold one, not bald one, Jesus, <laughs> Christo, the bold one, if he has any complaints. And he shakes his head no. And I kind of feel like he, Christo knows how unstable Ramos is. So he's kind of playing into that. Um, and he even kind of goes a step further and says that a pie cut two ways is better than a pie cut five ways. And I found that kind of interesting. Kind of, It kind of came across as somewhat sycophantic, um, just kind of telling him what he wants to hear. Um, that's my, that was my read of it. It could be just that he hadn't turned the corner in terms of turning against Ramos or questioning his methods, but Ramos kind of starts questioning himself. And he, I really, really like this scene because he asks Christo, he says, 
he says he doesn't understand why he can have them crushed and feel nothing. And so Christo, in response to that, brings up that power brings enemies and that he's not going to have any friends any longer. He no longer has friends. He only has followers and assassins um, or followers and en enemies, I think. And that's when Ramos says, like, so which are you? Like, what are you? And he says he's a follower. Uh, Christo says that he's a follower. And then he goes on to um, explain, like, he becomes, like, kind of, quote-unquote, the bold one. He says that he's going to be a follower um, as long as Ramos proves that he can be a, uh effective leader. So he'll be a follower until the time comes that he is not going to be, isn't up to the job and everything. And so I think that's when Ramos sees Christo as an assassin, as an assassin in the mirror. And this reflection shows Christo offering a glass of wine. So implying that it's poisoned and everything. It's very, again, theatrical, like the way he's holding it. It's not quite like, it's not quite like Hamlet skull holding, but it's very much like that kind of same vein of like presenting the wine, um, in front of him. And, uh, yeah, so, so it's just, again, it's showing, uh, Ramos, the, the mirror showing him his mounting distrust and everything. And that the, uh, visions of the assassins come after those individuals have questioned his methods and everything. So it's just really interesting to me the way that it's demonstrating Ramos's, uh, uh, Clemente's, um, <laughs> paranoia. It's just really pretty neat. And Christo calls him on it. He says, like, he, like they start arguing or they, have that mounting kind of tension and they and he says he calls him he calls Clemente demented and then kind of when they get to the point where they're about to I don't know something is about to happen the phone rings and kind of interrupts them and it's confirming that Tabal and Garcia have been murdered and that's when Cristo tries to tell Ramos that the mirror is an illusion and he's he's not seeing anything it's just this is an illusion this is just crazy it's crazy talk um but Ramos uh, shoots him. And I love... So there are two things that I really find interesting about this. I love that after Christo is shot, he kind of collapses into the mirror. He has his forehead pressed against it. And he's kind of shaking his head no, as if to say that... Not not that, oh, he him pleading for his life didn't work. But it's more to say, in my read of it, it's more to say that Ramos is, he's now had confirmation that Ramos is too far gone and there's no going back for him. And he's, you know, there's no talking sense into him. Um, also, the other thing that I really like about this is that Christo shoots him, but he shoots him in the back. And I found that really interesting as a kind of, as a kind of um, metaphor for Clemente's own cowardice and lack of honor, really. And I also really like the way that Christo goes out. Um, he says that Ramos will be lonely and he, that he, he, uh, he says, you have just killed a better man, Ramos. And I just found that really compelling as a kind of final line, that like a kind of final middle finger to the man who killed him that he was, uh, you know, friends with and everything and, and, uh, accomplice, uh, an accomplice too. And so, after the break, after that, we get the room is darkly lit. He's killed his lieutenants, and so everything is very darkly lit now. And I found that really interesting as kind of just a, a change up of the lighting and everything. It's just really interesting to me in terms of where we're at in the story. And so that's when Father Tomas comes in while Ramos is sleeping at his desk, very visibly exhausted, and 
Tomas says that the execu- uh, the executions have been going on for a week. And yikes. <laughs> and and throughout this throughout this episode really and especially in this moment we hear more and more gunfire um on the soundtrack and I found that really really interesting the way that it just subtly mounts mounts it to uh or escalates the the soundtrack for the for the gunfire um as the episode progresses i found that really interesting and what i didn't really pick up on until really until i read the uh plot summary from um uh, unlocking the door to a television classic but i kind of wonder so the executions are presumably i i don't know how much it we're meant to infer this by by this scene but my read of it is that Ramos is killing people that he sees in the mirror. And I kind of wonder if that is supposed to be inferred by it. Like, I wonder if he, in that week between killing, um, Christo and being visited by Father Tomas, has he been seeing just people in the mirror every day, every time he looks into the mirror? And has he been ordering those individuals' executions, um, over the course of a week? Because there's now no one there to stop him. There's no one there to, to, uh, um, you know, uh, talk sense into him and then fail at talking sense into him. <laughs> so I, I kind of thought that that was interesting. And again, the gun, the amount of gunfire heard off screen throughout the episode is just really, really evocative. And it feels like he's, it gives the impression that he, this, this plus the idea that the prisoners, that there were a thousand of them early in the episode, it just gives this idea that he's been executing scores of people. And that's really interesting. And his outburst at Father Tomas is really great. Um, because he, he says, like, if people don't like it, then they can, they can, uh, like, get at me, bro. <laughs> he says, let them live in a cave, let them starve, let them raise an army like I did. And, Again, Peter Falk's performance here is phenomenal. Like this, the energy of this, the anger is really great. And the way that it is, uh, in contrast to the anger he had at DeCruz is really just great storytelling because the anger he had at DeCruz was, was born from his stature in the DeCruz, like under the DeCruz, DeCruz regime where he was a peasant. He was breaking his back, like farming for other people. And he was, he could barely make a living. So that's what caused him to have this uprising, have this revolt. Now he has that same level of energy in terms of anger and rage at people questioning his methods and questioning his tyranny and he's basically saying like he's inviting them to raise an army like he did and and like overtake him and it's just really interesting the kind of um the kind of contrast between these two versions in this episode of Ramos throughout the episode and i've got to pat myself on the back cuz throughout that entire uh thing that i just said about that I was really tempted to refer to it as an interesting reflection of the character, but I did not want to make that pun, and I'm super proud of myself. So, uh, after this outburst, Ramos says that he can't live like this. He lives in fear every day, and he asks why he has so many enemies. And I thought that was really interesting. One of the, one of the really good things about this episode is that it gives this it gives this character, this, this Clemente character who is a stand-in for Castro, it gives him this self-awareness of his actions and it, it, this self-awareness that kind of feels like it is also kind of a biting, um, not satire, but, but, uh, it's, it's showing, showing the attitude toward Castro that, 
um, I assume the attitude toward Castro that people are saying like, why? Okay. When tyrants are in power, why can they not have that? Like, how do they not recognize what they're doing as evil? And so to give this character that level of self-awareness where he is asking these questions of himself is just really interesting um, storytelling at a character level, whether or not like, like with or without it being a stand in for Castro, that's beside the point. Cause it has this kind of level of self-awareness that you don't really find in these types of stories um, with this type of, of villain character. And Father Tomas's response is just as compelling. He says, this is the story of all tyrants. All tyrants have but one real enemy. It's the one they never recognize until it's too late. And I thought that that was really, uh, really great and a, a really great line to kind of bring us into the final real, really the final scene of the episode. So Father Tomas leaves and, uh, Clemente goes up to the mirror and he sees only his reflection. And so he breaks the mirror and then uh, we go outside of the room. We see Tomas come up to the door and we hear a gunshot. And Tomas breaks in with the guards and we see uh, Clemente on the ground uh, having killed himself. And Tomas says, the last assassin. And they never learn. They never seem to learn. Uh, which that kind of reminds me a little bit, in a sense, uh, to the final line of... The monsters are doing on Maple Street. Um, uh, it happens the same way all the time. I, that's paraphrasing. Um, one to the other, one to the other. Um, so yeah, so I th- found that interesting. So overall, like in, we're about to get to the closing narration, but I really like to think of this episode as being taking kind of literally. Like Clemente wasn't, wasn't to think about it in terms of the Twilight Zone element, the supernatural element of the mirror. What if Clemente wasn't only ever seeing his own reflection, like the entire time, and that the assassin visions were just psychosomatic, just an extension of his paranoia and uh, demented nature born from his rise to power and his fear of being overthrown like he overthrew De Cruz? And... I just, I find, I find that thought process being really interesting. Cause in that case, the mirror isn't supernatural at all. It's just Ramos, Ramos's, uh, uh, growing insanity. So I keep wanting to say Ramon. I don't know why, but anytime I say Ramos, I find myself trying to pronounce it as Ramos. Um, and, <laughs> And when I have it being like a, a plural or a possessive, I have it ramosis, which just makes me think of mimosas. Um, so I'm going a little crazy. I don't know. So I don't know. Uh, or the mirror is, this is a dumb note, but, or the mirror is supernatural and it was showing Ramos, uh, Ramos, his reflection all along. Or maybe to cruise meant that all tyrants are the orchestrators of their own downfalls. There's a lot of reads that you can do for, um, read into with this episode, but I find it really compelling nonetheless and really interesting in terms of a character study of this tyrannical character who, um, ends up killing himself because he can't live with the, uh, I don't know, fear of, of being assassinated and everything. Um, kind of interesting that they don't really have the, um, it's not like he couldn't live with himself or his actions or whatever, but I don't know. Anyway, here's the closing narration from Rod Serling. Ramos Clemente, a would-be god in dungarees strangled by an illusion. That will-of-the-wisp mirage that dangles from the sky in front of the eyes of all ambitious men, all tyrants. And any resemblance to tyrants living or dead is hardly coincidental, whether it be here or in the Twilight Zone. 
And I really love that line, uh, any resemblance to tyrants, living or dead, is hardly coincidental. Um, that is such a great line uh, and, and such an interesting um, kind of button on the episode in terms of showcasing it being like explaining that it is a stand in for Castro and everything. And the thought that I just had um, about this episode overall is that this is a much, much better, um, a much better episode in terms of uh, showcasing kind of the modern political climate of the time or the modern, like the Cold War aspect of it with actual you know, living, you know, uh, players in that it's a much better episode on that front than the whole truth was in season two, which that had, um, I don't even really remember that, but it just felt like that episode didn't really work for me. And I just really like this because this is a more serious and more, um, straightforward kind of allegory or metaphor for, um, Castro and, and the Cold War of the time. So I just found that really interesting. And that's my review of The Mirror. And as I usually do, I'm going to go ahead and do a non-spoiler quick review of uh, Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 15, The Frozen Sound, which is available um, to watch online. I do have a link in the show notes. And on that note, also, I forgot to mention at the top of this episode, but the 1980s episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, A Game of Pool, that I reviewed last week, is available on YouTube. Um, you can watch that in its entirety on YouTube. It's kind of weird. Like the, I think they distorted the sound a little bit to get rid of the copyright infringement kind of idea. And also it plays like a couple of times. So it's like a 50 minute video, but the full episode I believe is in that video. So, um, I'll put a, I'll dig up a link and put a link to that in the show notes. But here is my, uh, bonus review of, uh, science fiction theater. So the Frozen Sound originally aired on July 30th, 1955, and the plot summary is a paperweight is found to reproduce sounds from 2,000 years ago. And so as is usually the case with uh, science fiction theater, it is introduced by uh, host Truman Bradley. And the pre-show of this usually, like the kind of concept of the show and the, the kind of presentation of the show overall, has this, these kind of like scientific kind of experiments or these kind of scientific demonstrations that Truman Bradley does at the beginning. And this episode has him taking a glass of liquid with a tuning fork and kind of like, I think it was him hitting it at a certain frequency and that changes the liquid into a crystal. And uh, then he kind of uh, compares that to a natural quartz crystal. And I don't know, it sets it up to show it giving power to a light. And so it's an interesting and compelling kind of way to, to bring us into the episode and everything. Uh, this episode was directed by Lee Jason and was written by Norman Jolly with a story credit for Ivan Tours. And this episode stars Marshall Thompson, Marilyn Erskine, and Ray Collins. And overall, I thought that this episode was pretty solid. Like I said, I'm not going to do any spoilers or anything, but it does present this compelling kind of scientific case um, 
at the forefront. So it's about this kind of paperweight that in scientific experiments that it, it's explaining that sound can be kind of captured by, um, by objects. And the way it kind of uses that is that there's like this whole, um, underlying kind of, um, conspiracy thing that, that a group is trying to steal, steal secrets from another group or something. All of that was just completely secondary to me. Like I, I didn't find that compelling at all, uh, or mysterious or anything. I just found it more interesting the way that they kind of explained the, the way that sound is captured on, on an actual object. And maybe that's just due to me being a podcaster and everything. <laughs> but um, it was really interesting to me in terms of a concept. I don't know how truthful it is or how interest or how like how it actually is something that is like I don't know. I don't know how plausible it is. That's the word I was looking for. But it was still pretty compelling nonetheless. And there's kind of a reveal. I, this isn't. I hope this isn't a spoiler. But there's a reveal that they they kind of use this paperweight and they they uncover sound from it and they play the sound and the sound is from a, a, a specific um, a, occurrence, a, a specific event. And I just found that really, really cool. Like that, that was really cool. And also I, I have this prepped for this episode, so I'm sorry and ahead of time, but um, I also found this really compelling because my favorite band is Motion City Soundtrack. And um, they have a song called Time Turn Fragile, which is the, uh, which is the lead singer. Uh, the lyrics is, uh, him speaking uh, from the point of view of his father, talking about how his, how his father like kind of sees him and sees him throughout his life and everything. So there's one line in that song that reminded me of this episode this episode being about objects like 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 the fro literally the quote unquote frozen sound of sounds being captured on objects. So this is a clip from that song "Time Turn Fragile" by Emotion City Soundtrack that I I kept thinking about throughout this episode. So here we go. You still believe in the stories told to you by my friends and I when you were four years old. How it got so cool that we just froze We had to wait till summer to find out what was sad One of the best times that we had So yeah, I just thought that that was an interesting kind of uh, connection that I made. Um, also, that song is awesome, and that band is amazing, so check them out. But anyway, um, overall, this episode of Science Fiction Theater was pretty solid. Like I said, it did have, uh, it did kind of lack a, um, a kind of, uh, dramatic background to it. Like it, it lacked this dramatic nature to it. Uh, the, the clandestine operations, the spying and everything was kind of secondary to me. The way that it comes into play, the way that it's, the way that it's resolved in the episode just honestly did not do much for me. But the actual overall, like, kind of scientific approach to, the ideas of the episode and the the ideas presented in the episode um, were much more compelling to me. So overall, kind of a middle tier episode of science fiction theater. But again, that un that discovery of the sound in the paperweight, or in I, it might have been a fossil. I don't know. But anyway, um, the sound in 
that it was the paperweight because the plot summary. But anyway, the uh, the sound that's captured from from the from the paperweight is really really interesting, and it just really made me run, my imagination run. And also, if you watch this episode and you're interested in that kind of thing, a similar thing is a, a similar idea is presented in the TV show Devs. The um, there was a limited series on FX. It's on FX on Hulu um, called Devs. It was uh, created by um, Alex Garland, who one of my one of my favorite filmmakers today. Um, his credits include obviously writing Sunshine and Twenty Days Later, and also writing and directing um, Ex Machina, which I have a commentary of on uh, the Patreon at five dollars or, or above, and also Annihilation. So he's he's a really heavy hitter in terms of. Um, science fiction filmmakers working today and his show devs has a lot of really interesting um ideas explored in it and that is i think it's only like six episodes six or eight episodes um it's a limited series so it's all self-contained but there they do kind of have similar similar kind of scientific things going on as this episode of science fiction theater had so that'll do it for my review of science fiction theater this week. Um, next week on the podcast, I'm going to be reviewing the grave from twilight zone season three, episode seven and the science fiction theater episode. I'm going to be pairing that with is season one, episode 16, the stones began to move, which I, I haven't done the research yet, but I think might have an actor that appeared in the, an episode of Twilight Zone. I don't know. I'll let you guys know next time. But, um, for now, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Anthology and I really hope that, uh, that you keep listening and everything. And I appreciate you guys listening. Um, yeah, like I said, check out Victor Gambo's The Outer Limits podcast. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. This is my Patreon review of Falcon and the Winter Soldier Episode 3 on Disney Plus with a subscription and it's cool cause it's in the MCU and here's my review of episode 3 hi patreon <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that was but um, uh, Matt here um, thank you so much for supporting us and everything and I'm here to do a spoiler review an immediate reaction review of Falcon and the Winter Soldier episode 3 um, Power Broker, which premiered today on Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. 
If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! (laughs) 